insight, banter, and comedy? It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic, and it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio, giving insight from inside the games industry to you, the people. Joining me, as always, apparently now, uh, Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good. How are you, Nick? <laughs> I'm all right. Uh, one thing I wanted to start off with this week, I, I especially since I've been talking about it in articles so much, I finally finished the uh, Berserk Dynasty Warriors type game, Berserk Mosu, or uh, mm. Berserk and the Band of the Hawk. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it's it, it definitely is pretty meh, unfortunately. Um, there's, again, it's the kind of thing where you think, hey, uh, the main character there, Guts, in the story, he's always just slaying so many people it would fit, right? Yeah. And um, I, I will, I, I pretty much agree with Jim Sterling's uh, opinion where the, the fight with um, the character Zod is mm. one of the most interesting sequences in there because that's pretty much just straight a one-on-one fight which, oddly enough, is when it feels the most like Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, I which can understand in, that. Which, in turn, makes me think, you know, Dark Souls just takes so much inspiration from Berserk as it is. If you really want to play a Berserk game that's less than, I don't know, 10 years old, uh, just play Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, I and having played the Dreamcast uh, Berserk game, uh, I mean, I hesitate to compare it to Dark Souls too much, but uh, it, it's definitely closer. And that Zod fight is definitely a, a sort of one-on-one boss fight that's in the Dark Souls vein. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, dated as it is. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. The Dreamcast <laughs> game. I've said it before. I'll keep saying it again. The Dreamcast game, Tony J is a voice in it. Makes it worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, uh, Excellent. Uh, it's also got uh, it's also got Michael Bell and um, uh, oh uh, the guy from Robotech. I'm blanking Cam on his name. Cam Clark. Cam Clark. It's got my, my, any game with Michael Bell and Cam Clark is worth <laughs> what? It's worth a look into. Oh, why can't I remember who Michael Bell is? I, I recognize the name, but I'm not. My, placing Michael Bell's all. Duke from GI Joe, but ah. he's also Raziel and a hundred other uh, uh, characters. So yeah, right. He's, that's why I would recognize the name is because he's done a hundred other things, so I've probably seen it and probably recognized it at some point. Yeah. Oh, he was Guts in, in uh, the Dreamcast game, huh? Yes. Yes, he's Guts, okay. yeah. Oddly enough, I can remember both Duke and Guts' voice, so yeah, I can... <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, another comparison with Dark Souls, though. In, in Dark Souls 3, there's this bit where you're running around on rooftops... Mm-hmm. And these little guys like jump out at you, and I remember looking at them like, I know exactly where they took that design from. Those are the little little uh, guys. The, there's twins in the Tower of Conviction arc in the manga that uh, look exactly like this. They're they're Father mm-hmm. Mosgus's I don't know torturer henchmen guys, and yeah, that that's what they are. There's just so much ripped from Berserk, and in a good way, not like yeah. Uh, creatively bankrupt kind of ripped, but uh, more like an homage, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, and and getting back to the Berserk Mosu game, uh, there's just so many so many stages where it's just you know so many so much cannon fodder you have to plow through, and it's it's just okay. Um, 
weak, 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 strong, weak, weak, strong, weak, strong, mm-hmm. weak, strong, 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 weak. And one thing occurred to me is that for most of these states, because they all kind of play the same, there's not much thinking the, that you have to do. The Dynasty Warriors games, yeah, <laughs> generally. Sure. I, I Honestly, I haven't played too much Dynasty Warriors, so... Um. The uh, uh, but one thing that struck me is you know a lot of people for lack of a better term to refer to them a lot of people criticize the walking simulator or narrative driven type games because you don't have to make decisions in them. Yeah. Uh, I would propose that there's actually less significant decision making that you have to make in these games than you do <laughs> in the walking simulators. What? Well, there's weak and strong. Don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> The, I'd also say this game really suffers from not having a co-op. You have an interesting list of characters, and, and I've tried out a couple of them, and they actually do feel different, uh, particularly the Witch Shirky, who, if you go through the combinations differently, she starts summoning spells for, that use different elemental forces, and you can yeah. like control them and stuff. Um seems like an obvious game for a co-op. That, that, yeah. that seems like a really missed opportunity to me. Yeah, um, but... Especially when you take all of this into account, and then you look at the stage where it's supposed to be the night that Guts kills 100 soldiers, <laughs> and all they you do, do that is say, okay, now the kill limit is 1,000. It's like, uh, how about we do this differently, and I have to kill 100 lieutenants, and in the middle of it, there's a boss fight with with Samson, which yeah. which is a thing. It's a big, heavy, armored knight that he has to fight in the story. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be very different. Uh, the extra credits crew refers to it as differences in kind. I want a difference in kind in the gameplay. And it's all... Honestly, like, when I was playing through it, I alternated between difficulties. There's four difficulties, like, easy, medium, hard, and legendary. I mm. I don't think my difficulty was consistent. It probably swapped between easy and hard. For the most part, I think it was on hard. And to be completely honest, most of the times that I lost a stage were because I fell asleep. And that's, like, I didn't fall asleep because of the game. I just, like, I don't get enough sleep. So, um, and even then, most of the time I wasn't defeated. I just, a timer ran out. <laughs> so, uh, not not a very tense or dramatic game. Mm. Also, there's the fact that if you're one of the small handful of people who watched me streaming it, you might realize that there were points where I would play for like 50 minutes and a full half hour of it was clips from the movies. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I, was... uh, I didn't realize until I read a little further into the game how much of the animated stuff is just dropped in there. A lot. <laughs> a lot. <sighs> so, I, I'd say it's worth 30 bucks if you really wanted to. It's kind of neat to play through sections of the game that have never been presented in any other way. Mm. Or sections of the story that have never been a game in any other way, but other than that, it's... Uh, it's, a, it, it's not tense enough to be cathartic. It's not... Eh. If you'd never heard of Berserk before, do you think it could be a gateway to someone towards getting into the material from you know, just experiencing the game? Like, oh, I want to look into this. This was pretty cool. Or is it likely uh, to be question. too distilled, That's watered down? That's a good down? question. I think it might, but because of that lack of tension, it might not... It'll show you some of the thematic elements, but it doesn't show you, like, the depth of the struggle of the characters. Right. 
the 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 confrontations are just not weighty enough. But yeah, I, so I would I would consider the Dreamcast game or the PS2 game to be better at that. But yeah, well, it certainly if, was if, for if me. If you're reaching out to Dynasty Warriors fans, then maybe I don't. <laughs> it shouldn't surprise anyone. I said I didn't play too many Dynasty Warriors games, so I can't exactly speak to uh, what appeals to Dynasty Warriors fans and how to transition them into a property like Berserk. So mm. maybe I will give you a maybe. Mm. How insightful. Sure. <laughs> We'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, the main topic that I wanted to discuss today, uh, and what I pointed out or posted out on Twitter, is tools that we use in uh, QA testing. Uh, so, there's a handful of things that I want to mention, and one thing that I'm probably going to wind up ranting about. <laughs> um, so... There are a number of tools that you'll use on different platforms and, and all kinds of different stuff. You can have, um, you know, development boxes, which don't necessarily affect testing, but you can have other things. And if you're on PC, different tools will apply. Console, different tools will apply. Mobile, different tools will apply. All kinds of stuff. Um, so here's a few of the ones that, that I've been exposed to or used. Uh, first... Uh, thing I wanted to mention, I haven't used this in a, a actual work setting, but I've been introduced to it and been in a place where we were thinking about using it, is a tool called Handsoft. And what this is, is like a, a, a task time tracking tool and a scheduling tool. Um, so you would, say, break a project down into chunks, and then you would uh, sort of take these chunks and time them out and say this so you have this whole list of tasks that have to be done. Some tasks require other tasks to be done, so you can mark them as, as required on this. And if something slides out and you can push it out and requirements would then get pushed out, you can see the whole thing. All your time gets logged into it, so you can say, okay, we spent this much time here, we spent that much time there, which in turn means if you have to do cost audits, you can trace it back to um, exactly what people were working on. And this, of course, isn't specifically a, a game industry tool. It's more of just, I think mostly it's generally a, a tech industry tool, but I'm sure mm. you can use it in plenty of other places. Um, in fact, oh, what project was it? I think it was the um, the guy behind Silicon Knights, the guy behind... Um, Dyak? Is that it? Uh, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> well, he th there there was uh, some criticism that he was getting about wasting time, and he said, "No, we use Handsoft. Everything is accounted for." Yes, it's Dennis Dyack. So okay, yeah, that's Knights and Eternal Darkness. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I think he's the one who said that because it was one of the projects that they were working on that went off schedule, and I I'm not certain how seriously I take them because after having looked at Handsoft, I mean, it's not like you, it's not like a punch clock where you would, like, <laughs> it magically knows what you're working on when you're working on it. You can lie to it. So, it's entirely possible that if he was, if there was poor management going on, that developers were told you need to spend this much time on this and then they work on whatever they need to work on and then report their time where it needed to be reported to keep their bosses happy. So, mm. Fun stuff there. Uh, other tools here. Let's see here. There's uh, network tools that uh, I use. So anyone who works with uh, uh, network technologies has probably heard of Wireshark. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. Well, I know uh, I know I work with some people who use it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So Wireshark is a very potent packet sniffer. What you do is you turn it on, and it will start reporting every piece of information that gets sent to or that your computer sends. And trust me, there's a lot. You can sit there not doing anything, and the logs will immediately like you can't you can't follow them. You can't follow them by your uh, just by reading them. You have to start using filters and stuff. It's it it's referred to as the fire hose. In fact, uh, uh, I've repeatedly seen people uh, uh, talking about Wireshark use the clip from UHF when the kid found the marble in the oatmeal. <laughs> you get to take the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of tricky to use. Um, it is limited in its ability in some ways, uh, but it is very powerful in that there is no piece of network data that it will not see. And the things it's limited in, we use another tool called Charles Proxy, uh, where we can. Charles Proxy is another, it's, it's not just a packet sniffer. By sniffer, I mean it just, it just looks and reads. So you get a log of everything. Mm. Uh, Charles Proxy can sniff and spoof, which means you can actually do a whole bunch of other stuff with it. Uh, data that goes through Charles Proxy, uh, you can, it's way easier to read, partially because it doesn't grab absolutely everything, which in turn means sometimes it isn't helpful because you may be trying to get at data that Charles Proxy can't see. But uh, Charles Proxy will also, um, you can set, you can actually throttle your data connection. So let's say, oh, well, we're on a, a, a nice, um, I don't know, cable modem connection here or something. I want to see what happens if someone's on a 56K modem. Well, you can throttle down your speed. <laughs> I want to remember what that's like. <laughs> hey, hey, when you're working in mobile, what happens when someone has a shitty connection? Yeah, you, you, and especially if uh, there's a uh, uh, like a race case where something might be going slow, mm. and that leads to an exploit, or the data connection at a certain speed doesn't time out. There's all kinds of weird stuff that can happen there. Mm. Um, but the other fun stuff Charles Proxy can do is you can put a breakpoint, and it'll say, "Okay, your client sends this, and it gets this back from the server, and you can edit what the client says or what the server says back to the client." Uh. And you can do stuff like uh, find uh, uh, find an event that that you called, and say, "Okay, I want you to do that a hundred times." So just send this to the server a hundred times, mm. or uh, you can even do something like. Uh, Take an endpoint or a URL and say, okay, um, yahoo.com, I don't want to go there. Anytime you go to yahoo.com, go to google.com instead or something mm. like that, uh, which can be handy. I actually used that once to swap a game from pointing to its production environment to its test environment because we didn't have a client available that would point to the test environment or the other way is something. Depending on how the game is set up, you can pull off stuff like that. Huh, cool. Um, oh, yeah, speaking of the um, throttling, it's more granular, too, than just throttling. You can also set your ping. You can even set packet drop rates. So uh, the way that one works is if you if you think of the data going back and forth, it's, it's, it's a packet. It comes in little discrete units. If one of them gets lost along the way somehow, 
due to a connection problem or whatever, uh, it has to recognize that it's lost, request it again from the server, and have the server resend it. And the tricky thing about that is, let's say you have, just to make the numbers a little easier, let's say you have a 50% packet loss rate. That doesn't mean you try again on half of them and they go through. It stacks. So if you have a 50% packet loss rate, you have to retry that half. Of that half, 50% is going to be lost again. So now you have to try a quarter. Hmm. Of that quarter, 50% is going to be lost. So you have to try again on an eighth. So um, if you have those packet loss problems, um, it it gets it can get nasty. So if you have a game that can run on 56k uh, connection with uh, a two second ping and 50% packet <laughs> loss rate, I think you're fine. <laughs> now you might also recognize that I said that's only these only work if the information can be sent through Charles proxy, and we would want to test the um, network conditions one way or the other. Even if the data can't go through Charles proxy, there's actually on Mac computers a technique that you can use to to set this up because supposedly you should be able to do this on a pc but i've never been able to get it to work uh <laughs> if you have a computer that has a physical connection to the internet and you share its wi-fi like it's a hotspot, yeah then you can have the computer itself uh throttle its own connection and uh yeah i can get Macs to share their wi-fi most of the time, it's a little finicky one way or the other. I've never gotten this to work on a PC. It's not to say it can't be done on a PC. It's just I've had bad luck with it one way or the other. Hmm. And our IT department has had bad luck with it. Although I haven't pushed them too hard on it. Maybe they can figure it out. But, uh, yeah, then on Mac, there's also a plugin that you can put into the computer called the Network Link Conditioner, which does all this stuff on its own. Or not on its own, but it can do all of the stuff Charles can do with network throttling. Hmm. So that thing's helpful. Um, and uh, another thing, since I work in mobile and we want to make sure that these games are not, especially in free-to-play, you don't want people to be able to steal or hack or cheat or do nasty stuff like attack other people's game saves or any of that stuff. The only way you can prove that, or not necessarily prove, but get a reasonable level of confidence that these games can stand up to bad actors who <laughs> try to cheat. That's one way to put it. Yeah. Or black hats or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, is to have some idea of how to cheat yourself. Yeah. And, and see if they work. So we have a few tools there. So there, uh, I, I'm sure you've heard of jailbreaking an iOS device. Yeah. 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 They they have that too for Android. It's called rooting. It's essentially the same thing. It's <laughs> what what tickles you so much about calling uh, it rooting? Just, that means something different in Australian English. <laughs> oh. Just uh, <laughs> is it inappropriate? It is completely, okay. particularly for a family friendly podcast like this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you off the air. Um. But when you do that to a device, you get access to certain things in memory, and then you can install applications on it that'll do funky stuff, like uh, memory editors, which the way they, those work is you can... It indexes every memory address 
on the device and you look for a particular value. When it finds that value, you can edit it. And that's kind of an oversimplification. You have to, there's some, some struggling you have to do because usually if like, oh, I have 20 rounds of ammunition, I'm going to look for 20. There are 300,000 memory addresses with the value 20. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to fire. Okay. From those 300,000 you found, how many of them are now 19? 180,000. Damn it. Mm. So you have to do a lot of struggling to find the correct memory address. If you can find it at all, there's other programming ways to sort of mask the values. Um, but when you find it, you can do kinds of uh, stuff like, okay, well, I'm going to lock this at this value so I will never run out of ammunition. Or I'm going to reset, I'm going to find my score and set it to 500 million. Stuff like that. That's mm. one of the, uh, that's, between that and Charles proxies, a lot of the calls for, uh, well, a lot of the causes of fake scores that you'll see on a leaderboard. Yeah. <laughs> You, you you have a score that is completely impossible in this game. I know you're cheating. <laughs> Actually, that, that that pissed me the hell off way back in the day. We had a game that I thought was pretty cool because it was um, you it was difficult to get a particularly high score. It was also difficult to get a particularly low score. And I really thought that game should have had a hall of shame in it. <laughs> but then For particularly we, inept scores. No, no, like it was really hard to get a low score. Like you had to play a certain amount, and there, there was um, it, it played. Have you ever played Sega Swirl? Yes. Yeah. It was. It, uh, it, was, it was very much disc. like. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like Sega Swirl. Yeah. So you, you're always going to have a few moves to make. Mm. And I just had uh, one of the guys I was working with, like. <laughs> Never matched more than two at a time, and had a score of like thirty-eight or something, and it was just amazingly <laughs> low. <sighs> but uh, yeah, other people in the game were were there was a network leaderboard, and after we released an update, people were like posting scores that were higher than if you matched the entire game board at once. <laughs> like that's not possible. God damn it! Can we purge the cheaters, please? And we did a couple times, and then we gave up. Sega Swirl was on uh, the DreamKey uh, browser disc, for, internet browser disc for Dreamcast. It was like a yeah. free little game that was sitting on there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's more to it than just uh, uh, those game hacker things. There's also, again, Charles Proxy, you can try to modify stuff. Uh, God, Charles Proxy is such an awesome program. Uh, but there's also... Um, tools out there for hacked and or for jailbroken and rooted devices that will let you try to cheat purchases. Uh, I'm not going to go, I, I'm going to oh, be crap. polite and not really? give their names, but I will explain in vagaries how they work. Hmm. So if you have a free to play game, right? Yeah. And it sends a request to, you try to make a purchase. It sends a request to like the iTunes store, the Google play store. Right. And yeah, that store then sends back to the client your game on your device is, okay, you made this purchase. Here you go. Okay. Your game says, okay, we made a purchase. Okay, now we need to get the resources from the game server. So it reaches out to the game server and says, hey, I made this purchase. And the, the game server says, okay, you made this purchase. Here's your stuff. Hmm. Sound good? It's a rhetorical <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> because there's a flaw here. If you have a tool that will intercept the attempt uh, to contact the storefront, iTunes or Google Play, 
mm. and kind of just routes it back and, and it's like the the store never gets this request and just, it just sends the the tool sends back to the game a blanket like yeah it's good you got your thing and the game is fooled and says okay uh, I'll tell the game server to give me the stuff and the game server doesn't do anything to verify and gives you your stuff that's bad right <laughs> so here's the way around that again in in broad generalizations you have the, the and here's the correct path game asks storefront storefront says yes here is your receipt gives you an id mm. game says to game server i made this purchase here's the receipt i got from the store game server says okay give me a sec turns to the storefront and says is this receipt real storefront says yes that's real i gave it to this person just now game server says okay this is real good uh game client here's your stuff so if there's a tool trying to get between the game and the storefront yeah it'll give a garbage receipt and it won't yeah. be and and it won't be able to verify it and that's how that works <laughs> In a very vague terms that no one will be able to abuse. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, uh, it's also become clear that um, Apple and Google keep trying more and more stuff to make it harder to jailbreak and root their devices. Good luck staying in front of that, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a market for uh, for people who want their stuff uh, freed up, right? So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, and now now we get to the juiciest tools, the bug tracking database. Now, I've worked with a few. I've worked with uh, Bugzilla. I've worked with this thing that you never hear about anymore called Scarab. I'm pretty sure it's just a dead product from 15 years ago or something. <laughs> uh, I've worked with FileMaker Pro for a little bit. Uh, that was actually just when I was in training way back in the day. Uh, I've worked with uh, Jira. A lot, mm. a lot, uh, and Test Track Pro. Now, of all of these, um, oh yeah, I also worked with Redmine. I've looked into Pivotal, um, and one of the big tricks with a bug tracking database is you want it to be you. The more feature rich you make your workflow, the slower it it is to use. Like, if you have to add a whole bunch of different... If you have, like, a 100,000 issues in the database, you're probably going to want a whole bunch of different tags and fields to be able to differentiate one issue from another. But then you have to spend the time to enter everything. If you have a 100-issue database, you probably don't need all of that stuff. Uh, so you could just use, like, oh, here's a summary tag and here's your description. It's, uh, you know, a full description. And you wouldn't need, like, component or version or whatever. It's just open, closed, here's your basic info. Um, the, uh, I miss Test Track Pro. I don't use it anymore. Uh, it's an awesome bug tracking issue, uh, database. But uh, it's really expensive. Um, I've worked with Test Track and Jira as an administrator. I've designed the workflows. Test Track's tools are way better. It runs way faster, but it has a few problems, hmm. at least in in terms of uh, how accepted it is in the games industry right now. First of all, um, like I said, it's very expensive, very expensive. Uh, hmm. It is the Cadillac. Uh, in fact, I've had um, one guy I worked with said his ideal 
setup would be using test track as the bug database and handsoft as the uh like task tracking tool but uh both of those are i mean that's not cheap um what was it it's oh, i want to say that a test track license can be over a thousand dollars depending on the type that's for wow. one person for a year so some of these tools are potentially cost prohibitive for smaller oh yeah smaller uh outfits yes definitely i mean jira in comparison you can get a 10 user <clears throat> pardon me you can get a 10 user jira instance for ten dollars a month huh. um but you get what you pay for if you ask me um like i said test tracks uh admin tools are way nicer you can move stuff around you can uh, organize your workflow set up dependencies um issue tracking workflow not like work tracking workflow those are different things which leads to another problem is that test track is not geared for task tracking uh so if you're trying to make reports about i don't know if you work with the agile process um and you 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 want to burn down report you know how much time have we actually gotten through of what we've scheduled um the test track is probably not going to help you there or at least it it was it wasn't going to help you last time i looked at it jira on the other hand much cheaper uh and uh actually runs almost entirely through a browser web browser interface which is a blessing and a curse test track runs filters much faster and it's much more user friendly presents things much more quickly it's much more responsive but it achieves that by running on a client app, mm. which means it's less portable. Like if you wanted to access it from somewhere else, you would have to install the client on that machine. You would have to uh, configure your connection, you know, have the the um, database URL and the login password and all that stuff, and probably some other con little configuration pieces. Yeah, it's kind of a pain. Uh, I believe they've added a browser access, <clears throat> or they had it before, and, it, and that in turn requires some additional administrative uh, setup, which is a pain, but I don't know. Maybe they've improved it since I've looked at it. So if you're looking at Test Track and hearing me talk about it, uh, verify what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, Jira. Just disclaimer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jira. 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 Uh, Jira sells itself as a task tracking system even though it's rooted in a bug tracking system so it has some additional functionality with this stuff but it's it's got this weird hodgepodge slap together feel which you can kind of tell on the user side but oh my god is it apparent on the administrative side oh god i hate jira on the administrative side and uh, <laughs> I, I am I am going to give y'all a uh, uh, I suppose a, a bonus mid episode uh, uh, story from behind the the line here <laughs> battle story war story here, um, which will which kind of cuts to the core of what irritates me about Jira. So you, you you have two different types of installations you can have of of a Jira instance. You can either purchase it and install it on your own machine and run and be responsible for your own server, or you can use an on-demand instance, which means they host it, they upgrade it, they make sure it stays up, all of that stuff, right? Mm. Uh, one of the advantages there is you don't have to take on any server costs. 
if you're not using it for too long, it's cheaper. Like at our size, it's something like a year and a half before you'd break even. It's because uh, purchasing it is an upfront cost. Um, then they also automatically upgrade your instance to their latest, whatever they want. So you're not entirely in control of what they're doing. Hmm. They, one, one fine day, they changed how the user management worked. So it used to be that when you created a user, you would enter in an email address, a username, a password, and you would be able to set them up that way, right? Mm. Make sense? Yeah. They changed that to you enter an email address, and that's it. And then their email address would get sent a um, uh, an invitation email, and they'd set up their own password. And, you know, emailing to set up the password, fine. But uh, no username? Oh, yeah, you couldn't enter their full name either. They'd have to handle that themselves, their, their actual name. Um, and where the username came from in all of this was it would strip out you put in the email address, right? And it would strip out the at and everything after. And that would be your username. Have you mm. thought of the problem with this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, would you like to take a guess what the, the really big problem with that was? Uh, too, too many that are the, the same the same name? or Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's it. Because there's there's if you're taking out the domain... Your yeah. email addresses what's, are no what's longer to unique. differentiate it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you did that, the user, the username that you created, uh, the user you created, its username would not be the email address if there was already a user with that username in the system. What you would get was uh, just the letter U and a number that was the um, the count of how many users were in your system. So if I had Nick at yahoo.com and entered that, and I had nick at gmail.com, and I entered that, uh, one of them would be nick as a username, and the other one would be u45 or something. Yeah. Was, and and get this. Uh, first of all, all of the admins just rose up as one with torches and pitchforks and got <laughs> so pissed off. Because, for one thing, they didn't exactly message to us that they were going to be doing that change. And so it so, just happened. Yeah, so immediately we, we kind of figured out a workaround where, okay, I'm just going to put in some garbage uh, email address that represents the username I wanted. Because in my JIRA that I administer, I have a naming convention. Because I need to keep users separated from each other because, again, we're the, I work at a publisher. And we work with a whole bunch of different people with a whole bunch of different email domains. Yeah. So I, I, I need to do something else to say, like, okay, this identifies this person's here and that person's there. Ugh. Hmm. And they, they tried to take that ability away from me. So what we did was we put in just some garbage email address that represented the username that we wanted to give them. And then after that, we went in and edited the user to give them the email address we wanted. And because it wasn't able to send out an invitation, we had to reset their password manually and then email them their username and password. <laughs> How to break a system that works. Uh, they also, uh, I, I, I wrote in like real fast before I even saw that other people were, oh my God, I was pissed. I, I wrote in a bug to their Jira Jira because they actually, you know, 
do bug tracking with their own tool, which I suppose is nice, but eh, a little weird. Um, and someone, one of the product managers wrote back to me and said, we, you know, oh, we did all this notification, blah, blah, blah. We, we tried it and with a select test group of administrators and people didn't have a problem and we can't check every edge case. And I, Oh my God, I have, (laughs) I have never felt such powerful, righteous indignation. (laughs) Edge case. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, excuse me. I'm a QA manager. I know what's an edge case. This is not an edge case. This is a very (laughs) obvious event collision. If you did any testing, any testing with anyone even remotely competent, you would have found this. You should be ashamed that you released something in this shoddy state. This was a bad idea, and it was executed with an almost willful negligence. (laughs) (laughs) I I get... I get hot just talking about it now. It's been like two years. Seriously, there are thousands of people... Like, You hear about Jira a lot because it's so ubiquitous. It's so ubiquitous because it's cheap. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's moderately powerful for its cost. Uh, But, I mean, they just do stupid, stupid things like that. I mean, you, you might remember... Jira is owned and operated by a company called Atlassian. You might remember a few years ago there were these uh, commercials that starred um, Lumberg from uh, Office Space yeah. for a product called HipChat. Yeah, vaguely. Um, <laughs> yeah, they they bought HipChat and started advertising it and trying to integrate in their stuff. It's gone now. Huh. I, I Or it might be in there, but they don't talk about it anymore. I, I think they lost out to Slack and Skype. <laughs> Yeah, man. And they own stuff like, uh, was it Bitbucket and some other like repository stuff? They, they, they have this whole suite and it's cheap for the range of things you can do, but god damn it is it annoying as fuck. <laughs> <sighs> and, and like I said, on the administrative side, it's a goddamn mess. Get this. They have search fields. Some are case sensitive. On the, the like, you type stuff in, it'll autocomplete. Some are case sensitive, some are not. <laughs> their their consistency, their their terminology is inconsistent. Like, w- what do they mean by a scheme? There's like issue type, screen scheme, and like all this other weird stuff. They they have a, an almost I don't know what the right term is. It's just an amazing disregard for the requests from the consumers because there there are issues. That, oh God, there are issues that are so old, requests for features that are so old, they can drive a car. <laughs> um, there was one, uh, was it, um, I forget exactly, it was something like wanting to be able to see comments. Like, you have an issue in the thing, you can search for issues, you see this sort of view of, of like, okay, here's a list of issues that meet your filter, and yeah. a whole bunch of people want to add to that uh, the the columns that you can have, you can see like summary, severity, you know, c- custom fields that you set up, whatever. There's people who want to add, okay, I want it to display the latest comment that anyone has put in, which would be crazy useful because you'd be like, okay, I want a list of things assigned to me. Here's the status. Here's the last thing someone said. I don't have to like start sorting, like going into each issue 
to see what the conversation associated with that issue was. I can see the, the latest update right here. Pretty useful, huh? Yeah. Not there. They turn, there, there was one of them. Oh, oh, I remember. Uh, so, uh, one of them is, uh, if you have one of those hosted instances that we run at mm. right at the beginning, you have to set up a URL, right? Um, and if something happens where you want to change the URL that you're going to, you can't. It's just set in stone. So there's a, an issue asking it to be able to change the URL, right? Makes sense. Companies change names or get bought or whatever. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> so a couple months ago, one of the product managers commented on there. It's like they, they actually dredged this thing out of the swamp and said, okay, this is on our development roadmap. We hope to have something in, what was it, May or April or something. And uh, we're waiting. We're, we're still waiting. I, I noticed someone commented on that one that was uh when are when are we going to see an update on this it's just oh my god <sighs> and, and we're just still waiting and this is, all of these things there's other stuff to it too it's god damn <sighs> <laughs> and and here's the other thing the way it's set up the way you have to administer and manage this thing it's almost impossible to get it to work the way someone else wants it to work on the first try mm because there's so many different little steps. Because there's screens, uh, custom fields, screens, workflows, transitions, statuses, uh, issue types, issue type schemes, issue type screen schemes, uh, uh, workflow schemes, uh, um, requirements, uh, security setup or, or permissions, uh, notification scheme. Uh, God damn, managing resolutions. It has this resolution thing that I disagree with how they use it, but whatever. And the thing is, there are also baked in aspects of its functionality that behave differently from others. So you, you, mm. you can't interact with the way. And, and this is, this is the thing that takes the cake. They don't seem to run, uh, intending to develop their own stuff. They sell Jira more like a platform. And if you want all of this other functionality, they have a storefront where people can sell plugins that will fix missing functionality. Like you mm. wanna you wanna talk about about freaking like day one DLC or expansions and stuff that are ripping out functionality so they can sell something else. Um this is this on like an industrial level. <laughs> like they're like the whole comments thing. There, there's like a plugin that people sell that that should do something like that for you, but and here's the other kicker: a whole bunch of those plugins don't run on the uh, on the cloud instance on the on the uh, you have to have a, a a purchased server, otherwise you won't have the permissions to activate these things. Uh, huh. Or a whole bunch of them, like I said, you got to pay for. And when you pay for it, it's not a one-time cost; it's a subscription. Oh, great. Yeah, it's 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 absurd. <sighs> um, God, I could keep ranting on this for a while, but that's that's one thing that I I really wanted to get off my chest one of these days on the show. <laughs> <sighs> and uh, I do have one other thing to sort of touch on, as far as QA tools are concerned. But uh, I I wanted to know here, Jeff, if you had any other questions 
or if anything came to mind about this Jira stuff? Well, uh, well, just about testing tools in general. I'm just wondering, and uh, if, are there any uh, free tools out there, and are they even worth uh, are they even worth mentioning, <laughs> given the variance among these paid oh, ones? Uh, actually, that that reminds me of a, of a, a tool that um, I forgot to mention here. There are two tools that I can think of that are free. Hmm. They're open source, and yeah, that, yeah. Um, one of which I already mentioned is Bugzilla. It's a bug tracking database, open source, yeah. it's free. Uh, you probably need to have either a computer or a server to run it, or, or like your own computer to run it as the server, uh, <clears> if you're <throat> going to have other people connecting to it. But um, I don't know. It it has a bit of a stigma in the industry, but um, mm. when... I, when I used it, it would do some weird stuff. Like if you ran the same search twice, you'd get different results, which is really bad. But uh, <laughs> I, that was a long, long time ago, and I'm pretty sure it's it's better than that now. And a lot of it has to do with if you, I I believe that a lot of it has to do with setting it up correctly in the first place. The other tool, uh, there are I, I completely forgot to mention some of this stuff. There's uh, test case management tools. Um, you can, uh, let's see, there's Zephyr, which integrates with Jira and other stuff. So you can say like, okay, you can have your test plan up on here and you can see all the test cases. Oh, this one failed. I need to create a, 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 a bug for it. I need to write this up and you hit a thing in Zephyr and it'll help you create a thing in, uh, Jira and they'll be linked to each other. So you can generate reports on all that and, and yay, yay. Uh, but that one's not free. There's also test rail which does some other stuff. Similarly, it's also not free. But the free one is called TestLink, which is uh, what we use. Um, not because we're cheap, it's just kind of what won the prize for us, I suppose you could say. <laughs> um, and I, I think a lot of these tools, their utility really comes down to how well it's set up and how your workflow works around it. Yeah. And... Um, a lot of the test case management systems are going to have their own quirks about mm. how you manage them because it's not something that works very well with um, – it, it, it. you can't really lay it out in an intuitive way. Mm. It um, Because if you think about it, okay, I have several projects I'm working on. Okay, uh, so we'll have several different projects set up in the thing here. Okay, that's fine. Okay. So I have a collection of test cases to run. Okay, we put all those test cases into the system. Sure, fine. Okay, but I don't need to run them all at the same time, so we'll have different test plans. Okay, uh, I have 10 test cases. I'm going to have uh, 1 through 5 on one of them. On another one, I'm going to have 6 through 10. On another one, I'm going to have 3 through 8. On another one, I'm and so you can arrange your test cases however you like within the mm -hmm. test plan. Within each test plan, there's going to be different. So in your project, you're going to have a build. You're going to find problems. They're going to get fixed, and you get it again. You get a new build. So then you set those up, and in TestLink's case, the builds are set up per test plan. So then you have to set up the build to have your different results because it stores the results as well. And you have to like separate them from each other, and then okay, well we're mobile, so we have to run it on iOS and Android, so you can set up different platforms. And so you can see that when you're laying it out with all of the different differentiators in here, it doesn't lend itself to a very 
clear, intuitive division of things. Mm. So, like I said, a lot of it comes down to just how you use it. But, yeah, if you want to get started on something there for free, those are some a couple of quick QA tools that you can use. Um, actually, if you're just getting started and you want to use something basic, um, spreadsheets are also really good for laying out test plans. And that doesn't mean you have to shell out for Excel. Uh, OpenOffice, Calc will do fine as well. And OpenOffice is open source and free. So, hmm. in fact, it's what I have on my computer that I'm using right now. I use hmm. OpenOffice, not uh, Microsoft Office, because I'm yeah. not paying for an Office license when I don't use it enough to warrant paying for it. And if you hmm. wanted to get fancy, you can spend like five bucks a month to get like a, a Google Office license. <laughs> <laughs> use their their things. Ah. And uh, one thing I wanted to get to here, a uh, friend of the show, been on before, John, when I uh, uh, sent me a question on Twitter asking, um, how much of your testing is done by automated tools? Or maybe better, what kinds of automation do you employ when testing games? And I don't have a great answer for you, unfortunately. Um, we, again, I'm in a publisher position. We don't have the, we're not in the best position to be able to run automated testing on, at least on the clients, which is where the bulk of our, my department's work uh, comes into play. Um, there are tools, but if you want to have a good, powerful, uh, fully implemented, easy to utilize uh, automated testing setup, um, mm -hmm. you have to do some modification to the uh, game itself. Because if you think about it, the game has to indicate in some way um, to the automated script what things are, and it needs to be able to report back its own state. So if you're concerned about, oh, are you running out of memory? Okay, there has to be a thing in there that'll report its its memory or frame rate or whatever. If you have to, like, scroll around and find this button to hit or, you know, there's something that's off the screen you have to scroll to to select to do a thing. If the game isn't reporting this to your testing tool, um, it won't find it. Uh, it would be like if you're trying to play a game on a device and the screen is black and you're just hitting spots on the screen that you've been told and you don't even know what it's doing. You don't have any uh, feedback coming back. Uh, that's not very useful. Um, mm. There there are some sort of ways around this that we've seen, but they compromise the utility so much that it, it isn't worth it. Because it would... And without some of that other functionality, it would be basically, okay, we're going to have to run this on this device and watch it to see what it does. Um, I, I believe there are, are some other techniques to get around it, but um, I, I don't know how effective they are. We haven't been able to explore those too much. If you are in a position where you can uh, get those harnesses in and whatnot, there are several options. Uh, I believe one of them is... I looked into this before. It's called Xamarin, spelled with an X. And that one has an SDK, a little thing that you have to put into the client. So it kind of follows what I said. But it'll give you uh, an easy recorder so you can like just go through the game. It'll record your actions and be able to replay them. And it'll give you reports and stuff. Uh, the other one, because Xamarin is a paid service, um, 
And the other one that's, again, kind of open source and free is um, Selenium or a version of it called Appium. Uh, I try to use that uh, as a trial in, in the position we're in, and it uh, I was not getting great results, but again, I was basically using it as a blank screen to try to run through stuff. You have to have more stuff set up to be able to use it the way I was trying to use it. The other fun thing is that this has to be uh, automated scripts, if you're implementing them into testing, needs to be portable, something that you can use not just here, but in other places. Because uh, if you're just going to set up the automated test to run it once, uh, unless it's something that you have to run a whole, like, run these steps a whole lot, um, then your utility is limited. I don't want to spend 10 hours writing a script that'll save us two hours of testing that we're going to do three times. Your net savings is like one hour, maybe, if that. Um, so if you can set up testing scripts... That would say, okay, we've got these standard tests that we run on everything. It'll take us uh, five or six hours to go through, but we can write it in a way that it'll only take one hour to port from one game to another, and we're going to run it on every release. That'll save you a whole lot of time. And that's one of the other things with automated testing is it's not to eliminate a tester's position. It's supposed to free up your time uh, from the mundane stuff to let you do more of the fun stuff. Hmm. You know? All the stuff that you have to keep doing over and over and over again that kind of gets your gets you feeling dull and, and bored. No, let a machine do it. The machine will report everything accurately, and then you can do all the interesting stuff like trying to make Mario run backwards or something. I don't know. <laughs> ah. So, unfortunately, my automated experience is uh, limited. It's something I need to work on at some point in my professional life. But, uh, yeah. Once again, not exactly in the best position for it right now. Hmm. <sighs> and uh, that is the bulk of the tools that I've worked with. There's a whole bunch of other little things here and there. If anyone if anyone actually found this interesting and wants me to try to think of more tools that I've used, feel free to, to write in or hit me up on Twitter and whatever. <sighs> Shall we move on, Jeff? Sure. Okay. A few other things that have happened in the news. It's been a surprisingly eventful... Uh, week or two here mm-hmm. um we've got some reviews coming in for ukulele the latest in these uh, uh game developers saying that oh no oh no the 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 publishers don't want to support what i want to make so i'm going to go out and go to the go to the fans and get my own money with uh, kickstarter and uh make it myself i'm going to make it what i want which is going to be what the people want right well i suppose ukulele is better than mighty number no. nine <laughs> that's a low bar <laughs> uh, it, it's I, from what I've heard ukulele is very much very very much like uh, the games that inspired it your banjo yeah series. your banjo games yeah yeah I've I've honestly never played any of those just you know uh, full disclosure here but yeah, uh, me neither the 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 main the main thing that I've noticed and kind of take away from it is in a lot of these cases, you know, maybe the publishers had kind of a point. <laughs> maybe, you know, some some sometimes, sometimes you gotta you gotta actually listen to the people who notice what makes money and what doesn't make money. I mean, I I, I listen to Jim Sterling. To, I you, you listen to Jim Sterling, right? Yeah, yeah, I listen yeah. to the Jim the Jim's Physicians every week. Yeah, he talks a lot about you know. 
complaining about greedy publishers and, and whatever, trying to appeal to a wider audience and all that stuff. And, you know, say it a lot here. Business does got a business. Mm. Um, doesn't doesn't mean there isn't a market. I mean, hey, if you got enough people to fund the game before you started developing, guess yeah. what? It sounds like they got exactly what they wanted. They just didn't realize that uh, some of them didn't want it as much as they thought they did. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it's a it's a dangerous game with these nostalgia driven games because um, I, I I mean I like yourself didn't play Banjo Kazooie I I I'm find it perfectly reasonable to believe that there's legions of people out there that loved Banjo Kazooie and think fondly of it and who when they heard there was a Kickstarter for a game that was directly inspired by it um, might have got on board uh, very happily but. I think what everyone involved needs to accept is, is that perhaps perhaps this game from 10, 15 years ago or wherever that, that you liked, maybe it doesn't hold up. Maybe that gameplay is will feel dated now. Maybe there's nothing there there any, anymore. Um, you know, that's not to say that uh, a game like a Banjo-Kazooie or a Mega Man-type game wouldn't work, but... Um, if you're not doing something more than just a complete homage that that is essentially a updated skin, uh, you know, facelift of, of something that already exists from 10, 15 years ago, then what's the point, really? You know, yeah. like, and, and you know, okay, sometimes it works. Like, I'm sure this Final Fantasy VII remake will sell like hotcakes, um, but in the end, is it, you know? I I I think the reason that that a big publisher is is behind that game because it's going to sell enough hotcakes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, as yes, it, yes, there was enough to kickstart this uh, this ukulele game, but it, is that is that enough to interest someone uh, of a you know a big and you know I, I've got a lot of respect for Team Seventeen, but they're not exactly a big tier publisher, so. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it. I guess it managed to get enough money and enough interest to at least attract their attention, and they release good games, sure. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think if you're going to make a remake game like this, you either have to uh, have be realistic about what it is that you're doing, or I, I I don't I don't know how you manage to. It, I mean, yeah, okay, mainstream. Here's the thing, though: is it getting poorly reviewed amongst the the devotees, or is it just the mainstream reviewers? For both. From what I've seen, it's not necessarily getting poorly reviewed. It's more like, it's just oh mad. yeah, it's that. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. didn't I expect that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like honestly, um, I, I guess you're right. That is the, that is the uh, th- that that's probably about as good as you could expect, right? Like, what are you really going to make a new Banjo Kazooie game 15 years later? That's going to just be the that's going to be the next level of Banjo Kazooie games. Like, you, I, don't you have to kind of subvert the the gameplay or, or do something new to to manage that? I like, think what I think what this comes down to is being able to apply the lessons learned in the mm, interim to yeah. what you're producing now. Because yeah, it, it, I mean, in the same way that films have a language that is unspoken. You know, yeah. what do cuts mean? What do these certain beats mean? And if, yeah. you, you know, you can have certain, like, you know, fake-out scares or something where, like, between the 
the pacing and the camera work and the score you like it's ramping up tension in a thing and and then oh my god oh it's just a friend's face or something like that you can yeah there, there are those things sort of built into the visual and audio language of movies and those are developed over time and there's other things that you can do to kind of play with and subvert them but you don't just like take a hammer to the whole thing or you don't you know you don't make a movie that was that's shot in the same way and this is a bit of reductio absur- ad absurdum but you're not going to shoot a movie the same way that you did in the silent film era yeah these days no it yeah. it, do- it doesn't work it doesn't fit you can get better results the other way people are expecting other things yeah um video games you know there's a whole lot of okay left like what you expect with just a controller left control stick moves right control stick looks that yeah. took time to sort out and become yeah. the standard what certain buttons do took time to sort out and become standard how you interact mm-hmm. with the game took time to sort out and become standard and there's stuff that you can do to subvert it but a lot of that development has been so rapid because of the relative youth of the medium that if we're going to go and do a throwback we have to do it if you're going to do it like a direct throwback it's going to come across a little bit like the example of okay i'm going to shoot a movie right now with the same cinematography techniques as we had in the silent film era yeah it's going to be shot. weird <laughs> yeah not not even just shot for shot i'm just like just techniques yeah know? so well, that's you... why there are those complaints of, or, or criticisms about like oh these are all the problems that we had with platforming uh, back in the day. Yeah. Well, look at look at Mar- Mario. Like this uh, Mario Odyssey game, it's got everyone excited. Like, um, it's go- there's going to be some stuff about that. You, you know, you're you talking about beats. Like, I bet you any money at some point in that Mario Odyssey game, you're going to run forward and there's going to be a Goomba in front of you, and you're going to jump in the air and probably land on its head and squish it. Yeah. But. That Mario Odyssey game is using some of the beats of those original Mario Brothers games and maybe even some like tribute sections and stuff like that and throwbacks. But it's also going to do s- some very new stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be familiar and it's going to have those building blocks and it's going to have that language that you recognize. But it's also going to be a new product and everyone expects it's going to be a, a new product and not just a reskinned Super Mario Brothers or something. And, you know, if this uh, ukulele game had taken that advice and built on the Banjo-Kazooie framework and did something new that actually grabbed people beyond just giving them that, oh, it's this game again. (laughs) Yeah, so so let's let's have uh, a better camera. Let's have some tweaked controls, some of that stuff. And I think the Mario comparison here is really apt because there are – and there are – Examples in the Mario library mm-hmm. where you can go back at like the original Super Mario Brothers mm-hmm. on the NES. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just as good a gameplay experience now as it was then. I I, yeah. I think it kind of transcends to- era and is timeless. I think that's a really good way to describe what's timeless. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. And let's take that point to transition into... A couple of Nintendo headlines from from recently. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, Nintendo is discontinuing the NES Classic for sale. Yeah. Seem- <sighs> you seem to have some feelings on this. Yeah, I, I just, um, you know, Nintendo 
it's gotten to the point where a lot of people talk about it in this very sort of um, well, you can't possibly understand them. It's Nintendo. Yeah. You know, it's almost like it's almost like a modern version of that very racist, like the inscrutable Oriental type trope that existed in the 19th century. Like, well, you, how could you possibly understand them uh-huh. for the for the modern age? Like, how how could you possibly? I mean, yes, I understand Nintendo as a Japanese company, and I understand that on some level, Japanese companies are run uniquely, whatever, and that Japanese culture might affect their decision making. But on a fundamental human level. I don't understand how a decision like this gets made beyond this is this is my this is the only thing that makes sense to me and let me know how you feel about this my my the only possible explanation for this that makes sense to me is that someone lower down the the the, the ladder greenlit this and later someone higher up found out about it and said we have to no we we have to stop this I don't I can't think of any other way that this makes sense <laughs> Why would you do this? It's just this isn't just Nintendo is is weird. This is this is like up there of the like all time. Like I can't even think of a conspiracy theory reason for it. Like New Coke, you, you know about the New Coke conspiracies, right? Yeah, about how people yeah. the whole thing and it worked out for the end. I can there's a part of me that can get behind that. Like huh, I can almost believe that they did this on purpose. I cannot think of a good reason <laughs> why they did this beyond the. Uh, someone should hammered it from above. Thing. It just this is so inscrutable. I just don't get it at all. Um, I have a possible theory <laughs> that seems to fit some other unrelated bits of information from nin- from Nintendo decision making processes. Mm. So, <coughs> oh, <coughs> that one snuck up on me. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't think the Nintendo Classic was ever intended to be a revenue driver. I think mm. it was meant more along the lines of a what is a good way to phrase this thought? Um a brand signal flare or um lure or something. If you recall when a, a while ago there was talk about okay, we're we're Around the same time, they were saying, okay, we're going to release stuff on mobile. Yeah. <clears throat> they were saying that, okay, we're, we're not going to be quite so tight-fisted and, and just only have our product, our intellectual property, show up on our platforms. Yeah. At the same time, they were saying, okay, we're going to look at this and we're going to say, we're going to utilize our intellectual property in different ways. We're going to release <clears throat> on mobile. We're going to do other stuff like... You know, there's reports that they're considering movie adaptations of their properties. We'll see how that one turns out. They're <laughs> working on, yeah, they're working uh, on like I theme- was I was alive in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> they're working on like theme park sections and, and and stuff, and they're using it as okay. We're going to leverage our IP. We're going to use our brand to expose our properties to more people to bring them back to our core business, which is our products on our platforms. And there's certainly wisdom in that with, okay, a lot of people are learning and young people, kids, their first experiences are no longer with consoles. They're probably going to be with smartphones and tablets, right? Just because of the accessibility of it. 
Again, lower bar to entry, you get more people coming in. So they want to have their intellectual property be visible in more places so that people can come back to their core business. And yeah. that's kind of what I suspect was the objective for the Nintendo Classic. Uh, it wasn't intended to be an item that is sold for profit. I, if and if, if you, that's the case, I, I think it was a poorly executed uh, signal flare. <laughs> sure. If, 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 that, if that was their idea. Um, I think... They also have a fondness for manufactured scarcity in some places. Oh, yeah. Jeez. And that, in turn, goes to serve to give the brand and the intellectual property a a, a kind of a mystique. And I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm not saying this is the right idea. I'm saying that if I'm going to piece together what they are doing and and try to have a business reason for it behind Mm. what we see them, this would be what I would come up with. And obviously because it's what i have come up with yeah that was nice and redundant having having read console wars and and having you know read a, a cross section of the nintendo's history from you know the famicon nes through super nintendo to early n64 era i get i i can certainly understand how they to this day still might have that uh, scarcity mindset i mean it's obvious that it, it existed through the wii area as well they and could the have Amiibo. sold yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I do have to wonder, like, how much change at the top of Nintendo has to happen them for for them finally to kick that habit, because I I, I don't know that it actually does them any good. <laughs> mm. uh, but uh, yeah, if this is more of that and and signal flare stuff, well, I, I would consider it to be badly executed because they've they've um, I, I think they've they underestimated how much ill will this is generating. Yeah, that's that's definitely another aspect of the calculation, because if you look at it, they probably did some calculation about, okay, how much is this going to sell? How much can we... If Certainly, if they're smart about it, if they were smart about it, they should have taken this into account. How much is this going to sell? How many units should this sell? What is yeah. a good price point? Um, and they should also have some awareness of, okay, there's the resale market. People are going to get it, and they're going to sell it. Because scarcity is only useful to the initial seller, the retailer, yeah. Insofar as what they will charge for the item, yeah, not what it's going to re- end up making for some shithead like months and years later. Yeah, so you got people reselling <laughs> the NES Classic now at like three times the initial price. Yeah, you know, what does Nintendo get from that? Well, they don't get any money. They yeah. might get some mystique, mm. and. That's the kind of thing that they should be taking into consideration. I don't know if they have, yeah. But I, to make sense of it, I believe that I, I would guess that they did. Shouldn't say I believe. That's overstating it. But I would guess that they did. And their internal calculation is that what they want is that recognition, that mystique, and that difference is worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think in this case, I'd argue that it, that the the effort wasn't worth it. I, I just like if they if they thought that this was going to create great buzz and mystique. Um, and well, I mean, the the other thing that occurred to me is, did they think that if they sold a lot of these, it would cannibalize from Switch sales? Is it is it possible that they believe that? I mean, if they do, I think they're crazy. I, I think. 
I, I think the subset of people out there who would buy a Nintendo Classic and, and then go there, job done. I won't get a Switch now. <laughs> I think that's a pretty that's a pretty minuscule um, number of people. So if they were worried about that, that's crazy. But obviously, yeah, this thing costs something to manufacture, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure but, they were making profit on each sale. So I just, yeah. I, I mean, if they had, if they had. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like they're they're just saying no to to to, mon- to money for no particular reason. And like, it you know, it, what what are the what are the people who can't get their hands on this thing? What are they going to do? Are they going to just run out and buy a Switch the moment that they can get their hands on one to in order to play all these classic games? Or are there a certain number of people who are going to go screw Nintendo if that's how they're going to play it? I, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Like, I don't know. I I just I don't. I don't think that the generating buzz of this type is is worth it in the end because it's, they're it's also they're possible a it's also possible that they're just taking a very heavy-handed approach where okay we want to do this and wet people's appetite so they can come back and get these things off the virtual console I guess, and then we're gonna yeah. and then we're gonna like smash down on on uh, emulators yeah yeah and good luck yeah with that. yeah exactly I, I I think they need to accept that. The ship has sailed, and their practices make it worse. If there was if there was a cheap and affordable way for people to play these things a legal way, most people who had the option would play the legal way. Yeah, because it, you know? it's easier. It's easier, and it does. You know, it's not like I, I mean, I, you know, emulators aren't that hard. But even as somebody who could probably handle them, I don't. I don't really want to spend time learning how to use emulators. I, I I've got enough shit to do. Well, if I could go also, out then you have stuff. to go out and find a ROM that works, and if yeah. it's got problem, like you got to configure the controller and all this other stuff. I mean, <sighs> and and then there's the fact that you know I'm enjoying this. I want to support the people who made it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That too. If and Nintendo so, wants proof that like old catalog stuff will sell for a reasonable price, all they have to do is mosey on over to someone's uh, iTunes app on a mobile phone, and and there's the proof you need. People yeah. will pay for stuff legally <laughs> for cheap cheap bits, cheap purchases here and there, discreet hey, hey, purchases. I I have seen games that were fairly low profile. One of them was free to play. One of them was a paid download. The paid mm. download one way made way more money than the free to play one. <laughs> yeah. So don't 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 get it twisted and think that all the paid download stuff is dead. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I don't get I I, I think... also don't get it twisted and think that free to play is a license to print money. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's going to come up a lot. But I think um uh another way to look at it with Nintendo is that they they kind of try to use their library the way that Disney uses their video vault. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, we're, we're just not going to release... We're, we're, all of our releases are going to be special events, and it's, it's we're just going to release it. And that's what why Disney has some of its video library completely missed the DVD era. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. you yeah. dumb bastards. Yeah, it's just that unlike, uh, un- unlike Disney, who, you know... I mean, yes, there's illegal sources of Disney movies out there, I'm sure, but there are so many illegal free sources. I don't know, what are you talking sources. about, illegal sources? <laughs> Just, you know, Rom, uh, you, you could probably find Disney stuff out there on uh, on um, the same sort of movie-sharing, sh- um, ripping-type sites that you could other movies, although there are certain ones, obviously, that if they never hit the DVD era, they, they wouldn't be able to, but... 
On the other hand, you know, if you went out looking for any Nintendo game, you're going to find a ROM of it. And if you if you're not giving people a way to come in from the cold, uh, that that is that a reasonable way to do it, you know, rather than the BS ways that they've come up with in the past, or by discontinuing perfectly reasonable products like this, well, you're you're just going to let that revenue. You're going to leave that on the ground, basically, and I, I don't get that mindset. But yeah, and and the other problem with this has to do with uh, abandonware. Is if, yeah. if if there is no way for me to acquire this, mm. you know, in in such a way that it would generate money for you, yeah, then what, what else? You might I do? you clearly <laughs> don't care. Why should I care? Mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that that's certainly a line of logic. I mean, I can buy. A used copy of I don't know oh, what's a good one uh, Double Dragon on the NES. Let's just say, yeah. Um, if I were to do that, it's all used. No one who is involved in making that is going to get any money. Nope. To them, what's the difference between that and a ROM? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you start getting into some some sort of uh, gray <clears throat> legal and moral grounds there, but I. I feel like that's what Nintendo wants to do with the classic is just drive interest in, in their old library, but it's it's certainly odd in that they don't just try to release their whole library. And I, I will defend them with their management of their old library in, in so far as saying that it's not all just, oh, grab the ROM and put it up on an emulator on your own system or something. Have a closed, have like a walled garden or a closed environment within your system. I know that they would want to put some additional work into it and make sure it runs on their new hardware correctly. I mean, you can grab ROMs. I've seen ROMs that are, like, really jacked up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, they would want to do that. But uh, speaking of production, there's also <laughs> the Switch. Yeah, that one. Now, I, I've seen... They, they've said they've sold, what was it, nearly a million units? Something like that. Yeah. But uh, it's it's kind of tough for people to get the hardware. And I would actually defend Nintendo on this one because you don't want to overproduce. You don't want to underproduce. Demand has clearly been higher than what they were expecting. There's a whole bunch of comments I've seen that are along the lines of, why didn't they produce more? Or clearly they were trying to be cautious and, and, and have like Wii U numbers or something. They didn't want to overproduce. I think... Um, this is the kind of place where they were clearly not driving for scarcity and the demand actually just outweighed it. Also, really, console shortages always happen at launch. Yeah, yeah. It's that, pretty much universal. This yeah. isn't just a Nintendo problem. If, so. if there isn't a console shortage at launch, that's a bad sign, Wii U. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think them marching it in the spring, launching it in the spring in March... Uh, means that they can hopefully gear up months in advance ahead of Christmas if, if you know, it looks like the de- the demand is going to continue to be there. And it, I, I mean, it certainly looks like it will. So um, they've got plenty of time to get their their act together for the holiday season. Oh yeah. Um, and that's one where we're just going to have to keep keep ourselves tuned in and see how it all pans out. Mm. <sighs> Boy, that was a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> we got a lot more mileage out of the NES Classic than I thought we would. That was interesting. Yeah, well, if it if it was uh, if it was a clear through line on that decision, it'd probably be a very quick conversation. But uh, that's true. That's very true. 
<sighs> okay, so to wrap up this week, I wanted to go through the rest of the uh, the quotes list that I started last time. <laughs> so I believe I believe last time I ended up on uh, I ended off on um, let's see I've boiled many a pot of water and put that on the quote board, please. So to get through the second half of this, uh, let's see here. Okay, um, I don't think water's very nutritious. I think he's onto something there. <laughs> Halo 3 is supposed to be like Halo 3. <laughs> the leaves ain't looking too greenery. Uh, did you pump that and then not shoot it? Again, a lot of weird quotes about Nerf blasters. They're probably like one big massive stick. God, I do not remember the context for that one. <laughs> Tornado. Someone tried to say tornado and it came out wrong. <laughs> Marco's always in those meetings. The levels are now all three dealized. <laughs> you can't sue science. I may never be able to enjoy key lime pie again. That's dumb broke broke. I have cheese waiting for me at home. <laughs> Uh, or you can call me Dr. Itchy. God, I really can't remember the context for some of these. Uh, that took some sale out of his spirit meter. I can't yo-yo. I mean, I can yo-yo, but I can't yo-yo yo-yo, you know? Uh, you could do some turntables with your butt. What the hell? It spreads virally, like with my wife. Oh. <laughs> uh, to, to be fair, that was also really early in the viral spread of memes era. Uh, okay. So it was just trying to, it was, someone was trying to explain it and it's like, oh, my wife's not into it, but they got into this thing. So still, bad, uh, man, I can't, uh, juxtaposition, bad juxtaposition. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you could shoot yourself in the foot instead of in the, in the artery, if you, what? Okay, I gotta read this one again. <laughs> if you could shoot yourself in the foot instead of in the artery, if you could eat a tasty burger, I would. God, that was a mess of a sentence. What was the point of going through all that if you don't even get drugs? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I only accidentally went into four gay bars. Okay, this one's hard to uh, just say, but we had a thing where we would say, you are dumb, and it would be D-U-M. Mm. And occasionally we'd miss the N and hit the comma, right? And uh, someone tried to say this, uh, writing it out uh, in all caps, so held down the shift key, and it was, you are duh, less than. <laughs> uh, you take what I say out of character. Um, you could only sink it by dropping its weight in napalm on it. That's a lot of napalm. I break your back with my knee. <laughs> Is that Bane? I don't. <laughs> Is that someone's Bane impression? <laughs> wow. Actually, I don't think so. I think it had to do with blood sport. <laughs> or no? Oh, wait. Was it? <laughs> could have been blood sport, actually. 
or was it a game? Someone's like, uh, oh no, it was, a, it was, a, I think it was a taunt in a wrestling game pointing at their knee. Oh, okay. Um, and then just sleep, which was a repeated line. <laughs> and finally, the newest entry, um, if it's not the full load, it takes longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> Which was a line that was good enough out of context that I had to resurrect this list and and uh, add it to it. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, so that's about it. Uh, thanks for taking the time with me today, Jeff. As always, no problem. All right. So anybody out there, if you if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about here on Behind the Line Radio or see me write about on the, the Behind the Line article series, you can always get in touch with me at uh, kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter with my new handle there, uh, Kinetic Nose, K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K, K-N-O-W-S. See you all next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. is, but um, when I go through that quote list, I wind up getting a little lightheaded. Oh, son of a bitch.